Hello, and welcome back to Management 101. I am your host, Max Weniker. I am joined today by the one and only, well, there might be multiple of you, but Spencer Ferdig. Are you not familiar with any any other Spencer Ferdigs out there? I've looked into this and there are none. Cool. So I am truly joined by the one and only Spencer Ferdig. Spencer is now the most frequent guest on this podcast. The reason being that Spencer was my manager very briefly when in the early days of Uber, I consider him to be a fantastic people manager and also a fantastic friend. But I mostly asked you on because I have a lot of fantastic friends who are probably not also fantastic people managers. I asked you to join mostly for the reason that you are a great manager. I'm going to let Spencer introduce himself, but before we get to that, I just want to talk through what this episode entails because it'll look a little different than a typical episode. Um, this is titled in the management arena and trying stuff. If you are unfamiliar with that reference, I highly recommend going to Twitter and searching in the arena and trying stuff. I found it hilarious. Anyway, it is a part of the interruption style dialogue between us where we go through eight relevant management topics and opine on them together for approximately five minutes a piece. Some will be more, some will be less, but the goal is to get to nice survey course, if you will, of management topics and get all you listeners, by the way, we're up to, as of tomorrow, based on trends, 1,000 subscribers, all of you 1,000 subscribers, some insight into how managers from the startup world think about these people management topics. I'm now done with my spiel. Spencer, who are you? Hello. I'm Spencer. I'm mostly just here for the praise. This is routinely the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. Each time I come on, you one-off yourself, so I'm blushing. Wow. I am Max's, yeah, former colleague, manager for a brief period of time, still friend, uh, and I am just really happy to be here. There's fewer topics near and dear to my heart than how to create environments where people thrive, feel valued, are excited to come to work each day. For those at home, I've had little pre-screening of what we're going to talk about, so you will be hearing the true unvarnished thoughts and opinions of, of me and Max, which I'm excited. I know just as much as you all know about what's about to happen, so I'm excited. To add some pedigree to, to Spencer, Spencer and I worked together for a number of years at Uber. He was early Uber and went on to manage some pretty big teams there and then left to go to HBS, which if you hadn't heard of it, is... Harvard Business School. It's a pretty legitimate MBA program. And then has been a serial founder since then, including a very successful online gaming company, which I'll let you talk more about because I think that experience as a manager is really interesting because you were literally a founder of a company that grew to a sizable number of team members. First, let's hear about that company and then let's hear about what you're about to start doing. Yeah, absolutely. For the last three years, I managed and co-founded and led a CEO, Bar None Games, which was a virtual team building company designed to keep employees connected at the start of the pandemic. And then in the years that followed, as remote and hybrid work became more popular, we were a cash flow business, so never took on venture funding, six full-time employees and 70 hourly host contractors who were the face of the business. And it was the most fulfilled I've ever been in my professional career in terms of mission, culture, what my day-to-day -day looked like. 
which was a really rewarding and affirming experience for me. And as the pandemic moved into a less acute phase, demand for our business wound down. The fact that we were not venture-backed made it easier to decide to close the business when the writing was on the wall. And my love of just working at a cash flow business designed to make people feel more valued and seen led me to get training in and now prepare to launch a executive coaching and leadership team company where I provide executive coaching to mid-career and later career professionals looking to become more effective and authentic leaders and to leadership teams looking to fuel high performance through increasing team cohesion and camaraderie and alignment. So I host offsites for those groups as well. That's really exciting. It is pre-launch when we're talking, but by the time you all hear this, it will be formally launched. It'll be launched. So if anyone is interested in talking, it's... I'm the only one, so I was able to claim SpencerFertig.com. I've had many clients over the past months, but this will be the formal launch of this as my full-time endeavor. That is very exciting. As someone who has informally taken advantage of your career guidance services, I can definitely sing its praises and highly recommend them. Well, thank you, Max. I really appreciate it. What a plug. A thousand subscribers. So yeah, yeah anyway, if anyone's interested, <laughs> would love to talk. And I'm excited to be here in the arena trying stuff. We are going to try stuff today. I would love feedback on this episode format. Probably not the first six minutes, but maybe from here, what you all think of this style. All right, we're going to go through eight topics. Spencer and I are going to trade off who starts talking about a topic. Spencer, I'm going to let you go first because okay. you're a guest of honor, but I'll introduce the topic. So this first one, and I'll note when we're getting close to time. This first one is how to manage hourly workers versus salaried workers. And are there uh, differences between how you do so? I'm on the clock. You're on the clock. Okay, here we go. I'll give my first quick hit thought, and then maybe we can build on those. I think the biggest pitfall, as someone who's managed hourly and salaried workers, is the blurring of the lines of what it can mean. Full-time employees, you have a lot more control over what they work on, expectation setting, holding people to account. I think managers run into a lot of problems when they treat hourly workers or even more specifically contractors who are not full-time employees. And if there was a distinction you were making, Max, and I've gone afield with this question, flag me. But No, this it, is great. Yeah. And I mean, for, for the moment, we will consider contract and hourly pretty synonymous for the purposes of this episode. Okay, perfect. So the trade will keep running down the tracks then. Indeed. I think managers run into a lot of problems when they treat contractors like salaried employees, if you're going to use flexible work to help bolster the business, and I was a huge beneficiary of actors and actresses at Barn None Games who were the face of our company and, and helped us reach the heights that we did, you need to also play by the rules, acknowledging you don't have control oftentimes over their schedule. There is set work that they agree to perform and things that you can't ask of them, and it is not only not conducive to a positive work environment, but oftentimes unfair and can be illegal to demand more of contractors than what is expected. There are definitely some legal issues related to what you can reasonably ask for from a contractor. It's much narrower than what you can ask for from a salaried employee. But I also think something you touched on a lot, a lot of times contract and hourly workers, 1099 contractors, can come from very different backgrounds than a typical corporate manager like you or me. Um, and I think knowing that and acting accordingly is really important.
important to your success as a manager. Um, I had an interesting experience in my uh, role as head of operations at Incredible Health, where much of my team was coming from the nursing world um, and were hourly contractors at one point. A lot of them had never had a one-on-one before. So I schedule all these one-on-ones with team members who are totally unfamiliar with the concept, and I just start talking about what I would normally talk about in a one-on-one, which is, hey, what are you planning on doing for the week? Tell me about some of the issues you ran into. They were so unfamiliar with it, they were really uncomfortable. So I took a lot for granted, having come from a background of mostly managing typical corporate employees, for instance, at Uber and at Capital One as well. And so I think that was a big learning experience for me and something that I, I recommend keeping in mind to anyone managing contract workers, which is just don't assume that they are familiar with all the same managerial routines and employee routines that you are. Absolutely. I think that's a great point. And one other, do I have time to flag one last quick thing? I do. We've got a whole 90 seconds. Okay. I'll fit it into 45. One thing that I think I did well at Bar None Games and, and I think serves people well is to, I'm as the forest for the trees. Is that the expression? What I, what I mean here is that oftentimes with hourly workers, they might be scheduled for a shift with a customer that ends up not showing up for a piece of work that you might end up not needing to, to do. And I've seen managers in the past not pay hourly workers uh, if there's a last minute cancellation that means the work doesn't need to get done. At Bar None, we always paid our hosts if a client canceled a week out before the game because they had blocked off time in their schedules to work for us rather than elsewhere. And we invested so much in finding top tier talent and wanted them to feel valued and excited by working at Bar None. And the short term cost in paying someone for a game that didn't come through was far outweighed by the lack of turnover that we had in this top tier talent and the fact that they all felt so excited and energized to work for us that they often chose bar none over other gigs. I, I do think generally speaking, and this obviously is not universally applicable, but it is on average true, companies and managers tend to treat contract workers as second class citizens in many ways or take them more for granted, do things like the opposite of what you just said, which is if there's a last minute work cancellation and they're no longer needed, simply not pay them for the time. That inevitably will not pay dividends in the long term. And one thing I've seen go really well at companies who handle this differently is they have above average retention and above average performance when they treat their contract workers as if they were salaried employees in terms of making them feel valued and making them feel like a part of the organization. Great point, Max. And it pains me because I have someone coming in my ear right now saying round one, Spencer wins, which is tough to see because you brought a lot of good content. So we'll see. Uh, I I must have mistakenly hit that button because I don't think it's true. Topic two. I'm going to let you kick this. Or no, I'm kicking this one off. Yeah. Right? You kicked us. You go for it. Yeah. I'm looking at it right now and truly few topics I'm I'm worse at. So I'm excited (laughs) for for you to start. All right. Well, this is a this is an interesting one because it's not about people management in a typical sense. It's about managing upward, which is people management above you. Let's say that I'm the chief operating officer of a company. Managing upward would be about how do I manage, quote unquote, my CEO? What are some good and bad ways to do that? First of all, I want to call out that managing upward is not technically people management. You don't have control over what your superior does necessarily. You're not giving them a performance review. You're not holding them accountable in the same way that you would direct reports of yours. But I do think 
that really successful people managers also are good at managing upward. And the reason is because you are the protective layer over your organization. And one of the things that can often pierce through that protective layer is an uninformed boss. Let's say I'm the COO of a company and we are focused on initiatives X, Y, and Z. CEO comes in and says, we're having a problem with a totally different thing. I want you to drop everything you're doing and focus on that. That would not be the first time that that's happened to either of us, I'm sure. And that's a very common thing to occur, particularly in early stage startups, which have constantly shifting priorities. If you as a manager just say, okay, and don't do anything more than that, and you make your team shift everything they're focused on to do this other thing, you're going to create whiplash. And the bigger the organization, the worse the whiplash will be. People will start feeling unfulfilled. They will feel burned out because they, they start things without finishing them. They won't quite believe that what they're working on is valuable because it, if it were valuable, you'd be asked to keep working on it rather than stop and do something else. So I think managing upward is really important. One of the best ways to do that, in my opinion, is by setting very clear expectations in terms of what your team is working on and why and keeping your manager aware uh, and up to date on that stuff. There are some managers I've seen who do great work, but they don't really communicate it very well to the rest of the organization. So even though their team is happy and their team is doing good work, it may not be obvious to their manager necessarily. Really good managers go to their manager and say, hey, this is what we're working on. This is why we're working on it. And here's when we expect it to be complete. And here's what we expect the impact to be. That way that manager or that manager's manager is armed with the necessary information to be able to make better decisions around what are the important priorities, what resources are available to focus on those priorities, and if any shifts need to be made. Always when you provide your manager more information about what your team is working on, better decisions will be made accordingly. Thoughts? Hard to disagree with any of that. That was <laughs> ma- that was management 101. I would say the other side of this, and part of being a good manager, I think, is being in tune with your strengths and weaknesses and routinely managing upward was a place where I was given feedback. And so it was one of the pitfalls that I fell into often, particularly early on in my people management career was, I think I was a very good manager of those who reported to me. And oftentimes the people above us were asking to do things that maybe either required a lot of work. We didn't always agree with because we didn't have context into the bigger picture. Maybe we didn't agree with because we had a better idea. And I think it can be easy to fall into this like good versus evil narrative. And so while I always had my teams back, I was often antagonistic borderline to those above me giving the orders for what to carry out. And if I could go back in time and what I try to do now is do a much better job of asking for context and understanding where those above me are coming from when they are issuing directives that don't always make sense to me because the assumption of positive intent, eight times out of 10, nine times out of 10, there's usually a reason informing why they're doing what they're doing beyond, oh, this person's a jerk, oh, this person's me. And, and so asking those questions and getting that context, I think can make it easier for you to carry out things that you don't agree. I suffered from some of the same issues you did earlier in your in your career. I did as well earlier in my career. I often would take things personally when it came to senior leaders 
saying, well, no, this doesn't matter anymore that you're working on. We need to do this other thing or just changing priorities more generally. I think the number one lesson for me when managing upward is there's really no point in burning bridges and there's really no point in taking things personally. It's very rare that someone's truly out to get you and much more likely that you're just caught up as collateral damage in larger changes in the in the company that more than likely makes sense given context you probably don't have. So I would say if I could do anything over, it would be not nece- not unnecessarily burning bridges because I was unhappy with decisions being made. At the end of the day, that didn't serve me and it didn't serve my team either. And if I'm trying to be a good steward of my team, I'm always trying to maintain the best possible relationships with my superiors. Absolutely. And if I cool. could, oh, moving on. No, please. I'll add some extra time. No, if there was a bumper sticker here that I could have, the show How I Met Your Mother, I'm going to get this phrase wrong, but I was just at dinner the other night sitting next to Ted Mosby, like the main protagonist in How I Met Your Mother. Like Josh Radner? Like Josh Radner lives. Yeah, Josh, if you're here, doesn't seem like the single most friendly person, but I'm not trying to spit hot takes here. I thought well, I, you said we were burning bridges. Oh, wait, shit. Literally. Okay, well, Josh Radner, if you're one of our thousand subscribers, I watched all nine seasons, even though I should have given up. Same, before. multiple times. Okay, oh, what? Was right. That's commitment, yeah. But as I'm burning down the clock, I remember there was one joke like this, like chain of anger where... Oh, sure, the chain of screaming. Chain of screaming, right. And I just viewed my role as manager to be like the last chain in that link. So sure. not to ever take the stress coming from above me and transition that or thrust that onto my teammates. And I think if you can do that as a manager, that is one of the best ways that you can upward manage by being the end of the chain. I, I, so there was an article in the Chicago Tribune many, many years ago at this point. And don't ask me why I was reading the Chicago Tribune. I, I don't think I'm that worldly. Played up for the post game, yeah. <laughs> talking about this program that the city was putting on called the interrupters whose goal was to stop gang violence before it escalated after an incident took place between rival gangs someone from this program would go try to convince the potential retaliators that it wasn't worth it because it would end up worse for both sides i've actually like shared this article with previous managers of mine obviously not quite as life or death of course but i think similar concept we are the Good managers are the interrupters of that chain of screaming or cascading downwards into the org problem. You really need to be the protective force around your team by effectively managing upward. Cosign. Okay, let's see what topic we're shaving two minutes from so that we can get that Chicago true oh, yeah. story in there. <laughs> okay, okay, topic number three. And now I'm going to have Spencer kick this one off. Managing Gen Z. Okay, to be clear, there are stereotypes here. I want to be clear that this is more around generalizable differences in workforce between generations, which I do think there are some. Um, In your experience, having managed more junior folks from Gen Z, having managed more senior folks such as us, like millennials and perhaps even more experienced than us, are there differences in what each of these groups needs in order to be successful. Yeah. We'll see how far I go into this stereotype lane that we're trying to avoid. But in my experience, in talking to peers who also manage members of the Gen Z workforce, I think there can sometimes be a tendency among millennials and Gen Xers to think that Gen Zers are entitled. They don't work as hard as we did. 
I'm talking in a cartoon voice. This is not me saying this, but when I was young and you wake up one day and you're like, how am I saying the phrase when I was their age, I used to work X hours, um, more than they do. I think the thing that I learned from Mary, Mary, <laughs> not marrying, <laughs> managing, managing, managing Gen Zers is that, is that to the point before taking a step back to get the context about why they're asking for this thing that can seem foreign is extremely helpful. One thing that I have been really hardened by is the spread of mental health awareness and discussion among Gen Zers. And so it is not uncommon for me as a manager to get requests for mental health, which were unheard of when I was an analyst in finance. I, I grant those readily. I so wish there was someone telling me when I was a junior banker that that was okay and that what I was going through wasn't normal or maybe was normal, but that I needed support around me. And so I think embracing some of the positive trends as it relates to mental health and inclusivity and how that manifests in asks of Gen Zers and labeling that not as entitled, but as progress is a very beneficial lens to put on this for all parties involved. I, I definitely agree with that. One thing that I have observed, which is somewhat along these same lines, is that work as a priority sits amongst other priorities oftentimes rather than being a, a step above and at the expense of other priorities, which in my mind is a very good thing. I don't know that that was consistently the case when we were entering the workforce. I, I feel like a lot of people that I knew well who went into iBanking were doing the 60, 80 hour weeks and barely spending time with friends and family. I don't know if they regret that or not, but certainly I think it's probably better for your overall health to have work be balanced amongst other priorities in a way that seems to be more common amongst newer entrants into the workforce than was the case when we were first in the workforce. I agree with all of that. And also I was like 98% paying attention and 2% just trying to remind myself to say managing instead of marrying for every question <laughs> going forward. We could, we could dub over that if needed. One of the things that I was chatting with a relatively senior manager at a large bank the other day, and they were talking about how it's been such a shift for them to hear from some of their more junior employees that like it was 5.30 or 6, they were going home. And in that manager's mind, the expectation was you would go home when the work was done, not because it had turned 5.30 or 6. And as we chatted more about it, I think we both realized that's probably a more healthy approach. There will always be more work to be done. Right. But I think as a manager, it's probably important to keep that in mind that this is something that is a reasonable thing to expect from your workforce over time is that they will be more consistently prioritizing work amongst their other things in their life. And it's important to figure out how to ensure your team is efficient and only working on the things that are really necessary because it will over time need to fit into a smaller bucket of hours. What do you totally. And if you find yourself eye-rolling or frustrated when your reports do something like that, before you engage in that, just take two seconds or 20 seconds. Oh yeah, I said the word engage. Did you get, is that what you were flagging? Before you engage me, look, look inward. Oh, look inward, right. And take, I thought you were stopping me from saying the word Mary again. Uh, yeah, look inward and take 20, 30 seconds and think about 
how you felt when you were in their shoes. This doesn't need to be like fraternity hazing where just because you survived a tough experience, that means that now you're, that you're on the other side, that others should have to do the same. How good would it have felt when you were in your 20s and a new entrant to the workforce for you to have had managers that enabled you to, allowed you to embrace hobbies or take time off to go meet a friend for dinner and, and yet be the, be the change you want to see. I also just think generally working smarter is always better than working harder. In our early days of Uber, there were some people who really burned the midnight oil very frequently. I also don't, I don't fully understand that expression. That must be from a time when kerosene lamps existed. I was like, a midnight oiler. Yes, we had, okay. I, I, I would routinely buy kerosene on Amazon straight to the office. That seems very dangerous to be honest, but I mean, what do I know? Uh, this is not oil 101. This is manager 101. So I'm not going to delve too deeply into topics I don't know anything about, but uh, I feel like I pretty regularly saw people burning the midnight oil or keeping their lamps on past midnight would be the more appropriate expression today. And I didn't necessarily think that they were doing a whole lot more or doing a whole lot better than people who were significantly more efficient with their time and working not as many hours. The end goal is not how many hours of input did you give, it's what was your output. Absolutely. Cool. All right. Well, thank you, Gen Z, for being our third topic of the day. Number four. This is actually 4A and 4B. Given that we technically have unlimited time for this podcast, other than whenever you need to eat dinner, uh, I'm going to I'm gonna liberally offer five minutes for each of these. Okay. Uh, and we'll target like maybe eight minutes total. Um, but it's okay. For each of them. Well, I'm going to offer five minutes for each, but our goal will be to stay at four minutes. Not confusing at all. Okay, let's yeah. go. I'm a great manager. I set very clear expectations and then hold us to the conflict resolution. I broke this down into two parts. I find both of these scenarios very interesting for different reasons. The first scenario I've listed here is how to handle two members of your team who simply don't like each other. And then the second one is how to handle it when you have a direct report, someone you're managing who you don't like. And maybe this takes a broader significance, not necessarily just a direct report who you don't like. Of course, you're not going to get along with every single person who you work with, but more in the direct report sense, isn't the best performer, but maybe isn't so bad that they deserve to be fired per se. Anyway, let's start with the first one, how to handle two, two teammates who simply don't like each other. I'm trying to think through some experiences I've had where I've had direct reports who simply did not get along and how I handled it. Oftentimes, my experience has been that when this has occurred, it has been because those two people lacked an understanding of how the other operated. So maybe one tended to be super communicative, working all hours, and the other tended to be someone who was a little bit slower, or more deliberate, maybe got annoyed by that approach and felt like there were unreasonable expectations of them. I'm thinking through one example where I had a direct report who was running this product that we were in charge of and their work overlapped with a lot of my other direct reports work. They were kind of some horizontal support across the org. And this person did not get along with any of them. What I first did was I gathered feedback from all those involved. I first asked this direct report who was seemed to be causing the problems like, Hey, how do you think it's going? What? It seems like there might be some areas of conflict. What are you seeing? Why do you think that's the case? 
how do you think I could solve it? Gathered feedback from this person. Then I went to the other three team members, all of whom seemed quite frustrated with this individual. And I asked the same questions. I said, what's going on? And then what what quickly became evident was that the, t- the team member who seemed to be causing the problems was communicating with others in a way that I would deem pretty inappropriate, using sexual innuendo at times or swearing a lot in an unnecessary way, just very abrupt and arguably offensive communication style. And to me, that's not acceptable. You can't be making people uncomfortable in the workplace. After gathering all this information, I felt like I got a really good sense of what was going on, which I didn't before. So I'm really glad I did all that information gathering. I went to this individual and I said, here are some examples of things that I think are, are not acceptable in the workplace that I either have heard directly or have gotten feedback on as examples from others. Is there a way to communicate in a style that doesn't include these types of things? How can we get you to a place of being, of communicating in a more professional manner? And once we start working on that problem, it, it definitely improved. But I think that the only way to get there was by first gathering all the information from everyone and understanding what was actually the problem rather than just saying, oh, if they're not getting along, I'm not going to deal with it. Yeah. Okay. Over to you, Spencer. I just talked a lot. Yeah. I think that that works for cases where like one person is particularly the problem. I think where it gets a little like, or that's what I think I'm hearing there. Like there was. Yeah. There was one clear culprit here. One first culprit. Right. I think a lot of times it can be trickier as a manager. When you have two people who are not getting along and there is not an easy way, easy person to pin it on. I actually recently just finished a coaching course called ORSC, which is organization, let me get this right, organization relationship systems coaching. And it was a team coaching course. Mm-hmm. And for managers interested in this, not trying to pitch people on different coaching courses, but even if you buy a book, there's a lot of interesting tools and tactics on team coaching. Two things that were helpful for me to learn in the context of two people not getting along. One is there's the basic exercise of getting both people together, asking them what's going on from their perspective. You can delve in deeper and then getting a sense for what the relationship needs. With these cards now out on the table, what does the relationship need from each of them in order to be able to thrive in spite of their different attitudes? But what can almost be more valuable is running that with each person individually. So asking someone, what is your perspective on this situation? Now go to the other side of your screen or the office and put yourself in the person who you don't get along with Wells' shoes as earnestly as possible. What are they thinking? Why are they acting the way that they are? Going through this exercise of really trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes often yields really positive results for making people be able to be more empathetic and understand where the person that they're clashing with is coming from. The other quick plug I'll throw out there is for teammates who used to get along well and now don't. You can do exercises called the original myth exercise, where you really try to go back to past peak experience and ask them, what was going on when you were at your best? What brought you two together? When were you both clicking and firing on all cylinders? And by using that peak experience to get people back in the mentality and attitude of what it was like when things were clicking and going well, it can often yield useful insight to repair the relationship going forward. That presumes that there's some sort of break that occurred and you're trying to figure out what that was. Correct. And maybe that's probably more useful, I guess, maybe in the startup space or co-founder space, often very useful for co-founders who aren't getting along or members of an early stage leadership team who are getting along at the start 
of working together, but now the business has taken off and requirements or focus areas have changed. And there's for some reason friction because of that. My experience has been that oftentimes in conflict between two individual team members, of course, there is a lack of empathy and an understanding, like you're saying, of what each other needs in order to be successful. I've also seen, and this is not always totally overlapping cases, but oftentimes there is one person who seems to have conflict with a lot of others. And then there are other individuals who just have conflict with this one person. Yeah. And in my experience, and granted, I won't paint a broad brushstroke because I'm sure there are a lot of other versions of this, but almost every time where there has been smoke, there has been fire. I had spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to get that one individual who's having a lot of conflict to a better place. And ultimately, almost every time we've realized together, this is just not the right environment for them for whatever reason. And I will give a plug for cutting ties when it makes sense to. You could end up spending a ton of time making very little progress. And to be clear, I think everyone deserves some amount of effort to try to help them be successful. But at some point, it, it may just be worth saying, this isn't worth it for anyone. I, as a manager, certainly need to be focused on what's going to be pushing the business forward. But also that individual who's having conflict with everyone almost definitely is not very happy in their role. And it's totally okay to say together, hey, maybe this isn't exactly the right fit for whatever reason. Let me help you figure out a spot that is either internally or externally. This was a twofer. You got how to handle two teammates who don't like each other and how to handle no, one mean. teammate who everyone can't stand. <laughs> Did David mean to do that? Oh, well, so I guess let's go to the second one, which is, have you ever had a direct report that you just do not like either as a person or as a professional? Oh, yes. I will not okay. name I'll, I'll name names on the after show. Those who I haven't liked personally, which isn't many, but there's going to be people who you just don't with as much as others in life. Totally. That I think is probably less relevant in this context. I think as a manager, it's not about being best friends with all of your reports. People are going to have different interests and styles. Learning to work with that is important. For the purposes here, in terms of how to handle a report that isn't going great professionally, I'm leery, Max, because the first stuff that comes to mind, I think, is stuff that you already covered like very in-depth in Management 101. Just knowing whether the behavior is worthy of this stuff that isn't going to change and should lead to you to cut ties immediately. Sounds like the types of problems you were alluding to are maybe not that significant. I think then the question is, do you put the employee on a PIP, which I believe you talked about on the podcast, a performance improvement plan? What mandates that? I'm actually going to throw it to you because you know the universe of what's been said on this podcast that I don't want to be giving. I know every word by heart. Exactly. I'll split this into two buckets. There's the person who is not being successful in their role professionally, and that's why you don't like them. You're like, I really wish this person were just like delivering better or require less of my time to be successful. Yes, we've talked about that a number of times on the podcast. Then there's the other version, which is I'm a Red Sox fan, and maybe one of my direct reports is a Yankees fan, and obviously I keep that with a fiery passion and think that they're just a bad human being, right? What to do about that when there are direct reports you have who you get along with better? And those who you don't, for whatever reason, that's totally unrelated to the workplace. Is it okay to have different levels of relationship with direct reports? I will answer my own question and say, yes, to some extent. It is important to never make anyone feel excluded as a direct report. You don't want to say, hey, I'm going to have this work happy hour and only include three of my four direct reports. 
that is bad management. That is unnecessary exclusion. But I think it's okay to have deeper levels of personal relationship with some direct reports over others. There are some direct reports, for instance, who are more comfortable opening up to me than others. And that is totally okay. It is okay to feel like you have a deeper relationship with some over others, so long as it's not due to you purposely staying away from one of your team members. What are your thoughts? Max wins. Finally, (laughs) for me, it took five rounds. I I fully agree. It is only natural. I'm going to keep this very brief because I think we've run over the eight minute time, but I think it is only natural to have, to, to feel more connected to some than others. And to your point, while it would be very difficult to deny that you're going to be connecting with some reports more than others. I think it's very important to be careful that it is not so obvious or that you are not engaging in that so much such that other members of the team feel uncomfortable or like you're creating it. Yep. Topic number, it says five, but we just went through two of them. So I guess this is topic number six, technically. The career mountain versus the career ladder. And I guess if it's an even number one, I'm going first. How to explain the career mountain versus the career ladder to a hungry employee seeking to grow quickly in their responsibilities and career? First of all, what is the career mountain versus the career ladder? The career mountain, I don't know how commonly understood this expression is outside of people who worked at Uber in approximately 2014, but there was a senior leader at Uber when Spencer and I were in our early days there who talked about the concept that a career ladder is just rungs, right? They're each equal steps up. And it's one straight line word. Whereas the career mountain, obviously, if you hike pretty much any mountain, there are peaks and valleys in that. There are some ups, there are some downs. Some are longer, some are shorter, some are steeper, some are shallower. Most careers look more like a mountain than a ladder. There will be times where it makes sense for an individual to take a lateral move in an organization or there simply isn't a role available for that individual to grow into. So maybe they'll flatten out for a while, or maybe it makes sense for them to learn something totally different and actually take a step down in the interest of overall broadening their skill set. To me, even just this amount of explanation I've given can be helpful to an individual who has grown up with a typical boomer parent who thinks of things more in a linear, you get this job and then you stay in it for the next 30 years and you throw linearly from entry level to CEO or VP or whatever, it can be helpful to just have a think about that. Like look at all the really successful individuals, the really fulfilled individuals in your life. Almost none of them took straight line paths from entry level in their role all the way to the top, right? They took left and right turns that they weren't expecting. Sometimes they waited a while for a promotion and sometimes they didn't get it because they weren't ready for it. It's okay to grow at different speeds during your career. The, the key is, are you learning in your role? And do you feel challenged in your role? And if both of those things are true, then you're at a great spot. If one of those things isn't true, then maybe it's worth thinking about, well, is there more opportunity for me in this role? Or does it make sense for me to take on another role, but not necessarily just be unhappy because you're not getting promoted in the very short time frame that you want? Because that also may not be good. It's not good to be in a role where you're completely incapable. And sometimes people get promoted into roles where they are simply not ready for them at all. And that's not good for their long-term development either. Yeah. 
totally hear you, agree with a lot of what you're saying. I'm going to throw a little bit of a zesty curve here and take a slightly different view. Um, so there's like a curveball that has like spices on it. Yeah, the, little, the yeah, curve? yeah, exactly. There's a little, there's a little heat on it. On an illegal pitch. Right. Yeah. For anyone who saw me pitch on the Greenblade Little League team in, in age 11, I, they can tell you about my favorite. A lot of zesty curveballs. Yeah, exactly. A lot of zesty curveballs mm. that were definitely strikes. One thing that I've experienced through coaching is this need, and I'm not saying you're doing this at all, Max, but for me, this need to separate my passions, thoughts, beliefs from the clients. And so to me, that metaphor that you just painted resonates a ton, the idea of the career mountain versus the career ladder. But I do work with and see a lot of people who crave stability and knowing that if they work X years in a certain spot, they'll get promoted most likely. And most only have to wait six months or a year and that that continues. And while that's not something that I can personally really do, it is something that I've seen frequently enough to know that it's an archetype. And so to some people who are really concerned about that, I do think there are some industries you can go where if that is a chief concern, promotion, stability, et cetera, investment banking within finance, law firms, pre-partner level, some large tech companies, you can get that more than in a startup environment. And while every, I think the report or the person needs to just look deep inside and say, what matters more to me? Promotions, titles versus learning experience. And if it is the former, without judgment as a manager saying, okay, I hear you. This company, especially if you're at a smaller tech company or a place where you can't promote the person, might not be for you. Where can you go that might meet this need more? And maybe I'm speaking a bit more as a coach right now than I am as a manager. And as a manager, it might be hard to just tell a top performer to go to another elsewhere. But I just, I do want to validate this idea that for some people, the career ladder, in spite of sounding wild to others, it is something that actually does better match. I think that's fair to calling out my own bias here. I think I feel pretty strongly that the career ladder is often a substitute for maybe some deeper personal work totally. what an individual needs to do. But it is not for me as a manager to say, hey, you need to go think about like what really is your success criteria in life because it will be inherently unfulfilling if you're just chasing after the next promotion forever. And it's more on me to say, okay, I've now understood what's important to you and whether I personally agree with it or not is largely irrelevant. If it is important to you to get promoted every 12 to 18 months, then you're not in the right spot and I'll help you find it. Yeah. And to your point, Max, I think an another angle on this that I think you're getting at is oftentimes people can be pretty short-sighted. I've been there where I need this promotion for my career to advance, et cetera. And, it know, gets really trumped up in your head. Totally. And I've, I've so, I've been there. There would be like a playback reel now every time that I did that in early points in my career. But once you have enough time in the workforce that you can look back on the arc of your career, you can reference this mountain and just really briefly for me, like one great example is after one of my startups failed, I was recruiting in the startup world and I narrowed it down to two offers, one with a company that ended up, I would have been like the eighth employee and they recently raised like an $8 billion valuation. The other the company that I chose to join, which had great people and where I weren't a ton, but it, there was not product market fit and it didn't work out as much. There are moments where that can feel frustrating. Oh, I just made this wrong choice and screwed up my career. But also by being at the place I was when the pandemic hit and this idea for Born None came about, I was in a position where I felt comfortable getting off the ship and diving full into that opportunity where I think I would have been golden handcuffed had that not been the case. So I do think that sometimes 
Uh, as a manager, being able to relay those stories to your reports so that they can take a longer view of what feels like a very high stakes situation in that moment can be really. Yep. I, I vividly remember when this happened at uh, Uber, which was the, I guess the second place I was ever eligible for a promotion. And the, the first time around at Uber, I, I did not get promoted. And I don't remember the details of why. I'm sure they were super valid, but I didn't feel that way. I remember not feeling that way at the time. And I remember spending the next six months telling my tale of woe to anyone who would listen to me. And I, it actually might have been you or someone else who was in our entry-level ops managers who, who basically said, Max, what are you doing? You have spent so long complaining about this instead of just doing whatever was needed in order to actually get the promotion. And that really knocked me on my ass quite a bit and made me think. And looking back now, it literally could not have mattered less that I got that promotion six months earlier or later. But I wouldn't have believed you if you told me that would be the case at the time. It genuinely felt like professional life or death at the moment. Totally. This is the gift you can now give on to your reports that you indeed. Now we're really old men. I know. <laughs> True vintage. Sure. Okay. Next, I'm gonna give I'm gonna give this to you. You've had experience with this as well as any manager has if they've been in the in the game a little while. Handling layoffs. Oh, tell me one thing you would absolutely not do that you've seen happen when having to do a layoff yourself. And tell me one thing you've seen happen or you wish had happened that you think is a best practice in terms of handling layoffs as a manager. Are these can it be either are these performance based layoffs or like economic conditions? Given the current climate related to tech, let's call them reduction in force layoffs related to broader company performance and not individuals. Yeah, absolutely. So thing that, that I have seen done, that I did myself, not to toot my own, what is, I don't know what tooting ones are, Horn. horns, but one thing that I think went well, so we recently had to wind down bar none games. So we had a reduction in force of a hundred percent. The thing that is coming to mind is like this phrase song that I used to listen to back in the day where they were like, sometimes I'm scared to sing for any listener, but they're like, sometimes the hard thing and the rad thing are the same. So, so doing the hard thing that uh, quicker rather than further down the road, um, it leads to a big reduction in pain. So we had enough money in the bank to be able to exist for another six months. But if we continued to not take in revenue at a healthy clip, it would have meant telling employees that the business was shutting down without any time to seek out new jobs, have any separance, be able to land on their feet. And so, you know, it was a little painful to make the decision, oh, we're shutting down now when by all metrics, the business could have kept going for a while, but to be able to give employees, uh, it's worth taking on that fear or pain as a manager, as a leader that people trust in order to put your reports in the best position to succeed by treating them as well as humanly possible. And also pay more than whatever it says on Google of like what typical severance is. If you're able to, people have trusted you, worked hard, you don't, owe people severance for years and years on end, but the people who have come on and, and believed in your company and worked hard for you, make sure that they're set up for success as they embark on their next adventure. Thing that I would not advise in a reduction in force, I've definitely seen situations with people I know where managers or leaders don't set their employees up for success, give very little severance, and take a lot of money themselves because they are very scared about what their next chapter looks like. And to that, I would just say, don't let fear 
I guess this is the other side of fear. Don't let fear in your next step cloud the way that you treat others who have entrusted you as their manager. And if you're feeling scared as a more seasoned leader who was managing a team, you can only imagine how scared your more junior reports are feeling in this kind of economy. So know that the same skills that enabled you to be a manager and lead a team will see you through to your next adventure and and make sure your people are set up. I feel like a lot of what we've talked about today and maybe more general management philosophies can be boiled down to just don't be a jerk. Don't be a jerk when you're in the arena trying stuff. <laughs> yeah, you could be in the arena and trying stuff and not be an asshole. Yeah. Um, I agree with everything you've said. This is a very not contentious part of the interruption. It's very agreeable. Well, let me add one thing. Uh, a spicy curveball. Yes. Well, no, it's it's very much a straightforward. It's a fastball with minimal spice on it. Okay. Do not sugarcoat in your communication. I have seen a lot of organizations who say, we're doing this layoff because... The business is going really well and we want to be more focused on on this thing rather than that thing. Or they've they've said a lot of things related, just trying to downplay the impact of the layoff and not be honest and just say, look, we overhired given our growth rates. We expected X growth rate, we got Y growth rate. We expected this level of performance in this line of business and we got that level of performance. Or over time, we've just needed fewer employees because we've been able to automate certain things. Employees are not idiots. One of the things I've seen happen very regularly when company leaders try to sugarcoat something or get all inspirational with random quotes is employees don't leave feeling excited or empowered. They leave lacking information. They fill in the dots. They, they fill in the gaps themselves often with a lot worse version of events than actually occurred and one that makes employees not feel engaged and ultimately hurts your business performance. Rip off the bandaid of saying, look, I as a leader made mistakes or I as a leader made a decision that didn't work out the way that I wanted it to. And these are unfortunately the results. You can be honest, you will get a lot more back from your team because they're not just going to believe you when you give the sugar-coated version. You don't totally. think they will because you're pulling one over on them. Totally. Very well said. Thank but yet still, Spencer wins. Dang, that was tough. That was so elegant. That's weird. I'm sorry. It, it kind of feels like it's, it's coming from your voice, but you're totally right. This is AI-generated judgment. Yeah, no, this is, yeah, this is very... Add into that feed. Okay. You're down 7-1, so let's see. Yeah, I literally can't come back. We haven't even had eight rounds, so do they just give me an extra bonus point? Sure. Heading into round eight. But no, no, we, the, we've had seven rounds. You're right. right. So the fact that I'm leading 7-1 is shocking. I think you maybe did extra well on the managing Gen Z topic. Yeah, yeah that, that was it. Because you're apparently marrying someone in Gen Z. Thank you for bringing that up, I guess. Yeah, no worries. 7-2. That's it. Okay. Let's make this the last topic because we, as we correctly predicted, went over time. Can we, um, can we do the last number instead of do you want to do the last one? Yeah, I think that will share sure. our interest thing. What do you think? Well, okay, sure. Let's not judge the topics that I came up with as uninteresting, but I mean, it's, that last topic it is. Last topic it is. All right. This is topic number who's, I don't remember who's hey. this one. So you're starting. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Bring us some Crisis management. What to do when something goes really wrong? And I put in parentheses here the example of managing during the Uber 2017 
I don't know what I would call that year, but just I loved the middle. It was pre-plugged. Yeah, Yeah, William, just William. When are the going gets tough, just do you. I'm done. When the going gets tough, ask the person who's causing all the problems to leave, and hence why things got better post your departure. Yes. Uh, yeah. well, I, I started this conversation as like the best manager you'd ever met. And I, we leave this conversation as the cause of Uber's catastrophic year. Touche. Maybe those are inconsistent. For those who are lacking context and don't have access to Google, the year of 2017 at Uber was not the most delightful one. The, the company was plagued by a series of Internal and external scandals. It ultimately resulted in the departure of one of the founders and the CEO, Travis, and a lot of shakeup at the senior leader level and a lot of terminations of mid-level managers and individuals in the company and a lot of cultural changes. It was not the easiest year to be a part of the Uber workforce, and I would call it one large crisis as a people manager. So how to manage during a crisis. First of all, one of the things that I experienced over the course of that year was as a manager, I'm having whatever experience like as a a human being with everything that's going on. And I might be having a hard time with it. I definitely was at certain times. There are definitely points where I was almost embarrassed to say that I worked for Uber to people outside the company. Things got that bad. But I also saw that every almost everyone on my team was having a difficult time with it in their own way and in many ways a even more difficult time than I was. I think I was fortunate to have some perspective from more senior leaders that maybe they were not getting as directly. I was fortunate maybe to be a little bit further along in my career and have had seen maybe not situations quite this bad, but just generally have the attitude of things will get better eventually and it, it'll all work out in the end. Whereas some people on my team, Uber was literally their entire career. It was their golden ticket, they thought, and they thought everything was falling apart around them. And uh, one of the learning experiences I had from that, which is probably more broadly applicable, is uh, it's important to recognize that whatever experience you're having as a manager, it's possible that you're during a crisis, the people below you are having significantly scarier versions of that experience. And you need to create space for them to talk through that because it's very unlikely they will have that otherwise. I think it's a best practice to just during a normal one-on-one or development check-in just to check in and say, hey, I know a lot has been going on or like this really big problem occurred at the company. How are you doing? How are you feeling about it? Is there anything you want to chat through? Is there any way that I can be supportive? Because not everyone will bring up that they're having a hard time with it, but they will still be having a hard time with it and if you're not creating that space to talk through it, then it's possible that no one will for them. Thoughts? I firmly disagree. <laughs> Dude, that was beautiful. Yeah, and I would just add, I know this is like the least contentious episode of Pardon the Management ever. <laughs> uh, We're not really in an arena. We're in a, like, uh, relay. Yeah, exactly. And I'm bringing us home. Um, or maybe I've now handed the batons to you. Thank you. For those watching us on video, I just received an air baton. The thing I would add from that Uber experience that I think is translatable elsewhere as well is that I think when your company is in a time of crisis, 
there can be this very us versus them mentality in terms of the company versus the world. And so within Uber, there was a lot, the media is out to get us. They don't understand us. And this expectation, I feel like internally that everyone also feel the same and kind of like rally around the flag. And I think it's really important to realize that within your organization, employees are going to run the gamut in terms of the role that work in your company plays in their life. Some maybe have been there since the company's founding, have lots of equity, feel really connected. Others maybe started a few months ago. They do the job really well. They complete everything ahead of time and and above expectations. But the job is just one piece of, of a holistic life and making sure as a manager that you are not judging those who don't seem sufficiently upset or frustrated or rallying around the flag because there is no one right way to respond. And quick addendum, in some cases, these voices that are less heated and less frustrated often can help bring out voices that customers or the outside are feeling more impartial, unbiased voices that are ultimately going to help you with your company's brand, product, or whatever the nexus or genesis is of what is causing such crisis. Yeah. It's definitely right. Do not judge someone's quote unquote grieving process or reaction to these types of events because everyone's different and one is not better. That was, that could have saved us 30 seconds if I said it like that. Damn. Oh, well. Oh, well. Are we, uh, we're over an hour. But that's okay. But we're out of topics because we skipped to the last one. So we're done. How'd it feel? How'd your first time in the arena? Was it what you expected? Yeah, I'm, I'm in the arena. I feel like we tried some stuff. I guess remains to be seen if this episode brings us over 1,000 subscribers or if it plummets us to zero. And the common thread will be you. So I'll, you'll be fully to blame for Management 101's demise if that ends up being the case. Well, that would be a shame if that is the case because that was just Holyfield Mayweather right there going <laughs> eight rounds. So if I they held hands. What? If they held hands. If they got pregnant, exactly. that was Holy Shields and Mayweather going on a yoga retreat together <laughs> and not well, staying the entire time. No, well, well done. Very funny. Thank you for joining me today, Spencer. A pleasure to have you on as always. And uh, yeah, if you're, if you're still listening an hour and three minutes in, would love your feedback on today's episode style. I know we covered a number of different topics and curious if they just seemed disjointed or they were actually interesting. Now I'm going to stay here any longer. So this sounds good with that level of joke. I think we have to call it a day. Thanks for listening and have a good rest of your week.